You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. To be able to share God's word with you guys this morning, I'm very, very thankful. Um, thankful that we could have at South Canyon Baptist Church that we could have a part in the launching of this new church and so excited to see so many of you here today um, gathered in this place to worship. Um, Let me lead us in prayer again as we prepare to look into God's word together. Father, I, I pray that you would use these next minutes to reveal yourself to us. I pray that we would see in these stories that we just heard read that we would see in what Christ Jesus did, that we would see his glory as his disciples did. And uh, I pray, Father, that there would be people here this morning who in seeing the glory of Jesus in this text would believe in him and would have life. Father, would you do your work to this end for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Some of you may uh, have heard of a movie with Mel Gibson many, many years ago called Signs. I don't know if you happen to see that, but the, the, the movie was basically this. Mel Gibson and his family experiences a tragic loss, a, a terrible accident happens to Gibson's wife in the, in the movie. And after that, some strange things begin to happen on the farm that they own and operate. They begin to have uh, crop circles that begin to appear in their cornfield. And at first, they think it's pranksters, people who are just doing this uh, to, to bother them and to, um, to, to, be, to do pranks and so forth. But then they begin to hear on the news that there are crop circles that are also being found in many other places at about this same time all over the world. And in addition to that, they begin on the farm to see some things and to hear some things that are scary and very strange. And so eventually the essence of the movie is that the family becomes convinced that these crop circles are signs, that they're evidences of extraterrestrials who have come to earth. And so that's the essence of the movie, and I share that because in some ways this movie and the title of the movie Signs connects to this book that we're studying through and that you guys have been studying through uh, for a while now since you started The book of John often refers to, and John, the author of this book, refers to signs quite often. And the first part of the book, all the way through chapter 11, is sometimes referred to as the book of signs because John gives seven signs or miracles that are significant, that point to something and tell us something about who Jesus really was. And so that's what we're going to be seeing today. In just a, few, in just a um, couple of moments ago when you heard Josie reading the text, you may have noticed that the word signs or sign was found in those verses two times. The first one in verse 11, and then the second time a little bit later in verse, verses 18 and 19. So what we're going to do this morning together is look at two stories that you've just heard that took place in two settings, and both of those have a connection to signs that we'll see in the text. So let's look at the first story that took place at the wedding at Canaan. We read about this, and you just heard it read, 
in verses 1 through 12, the situation is this. Jesus is at a wedding. His disciples are there with him, and his mother Mary is there, we're told. We also find out later that his disciples, or at least his, or rather his brothers, were also there because they leave when they leave from the wedding ceremony to go down to Capernaum. And so, in connection with this story, I want you to look at verse 11 because this is what we're told by John, the author of this gospel, after he tells us about this incredible miracle that Jesus performs at this wedding, turning water into wine. Verse 11 says this, this, meaning this miracle, the first of his signs, meaning this is the first, but there are more to come, and John will lay out for us seven of those as we continue through the book together, as you guys do that. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana, in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So in this first setting and in this first story, a sign is performed by Jesus. That's what John calls it here in verse 11. Let me give you my definition for a sign as we find it in the book of John. A sign, according to how John uses the word here and elsewhere in the book, is an occurrence that indicates the presence of divine glory to produce faith which brings life. So that's what we see happening in this first miracle. So let's think about this story. Jesus is at a wedding and the wine runs out. Now, To us, that might not sound like a super big deal, but in that day it would have been. It would have been, in one sense, the ultimate social faux pas. And it even, some believe, could have resulted in lawsuits that could have actually been brought against the bridegroom's family for this. And so this was a serious situation, and so Mary learns about it. Mary, evidently, there invited Jesus, his brothers, his disciples, his mother, They're there, at least they know this family, the family of the bridegroom who's having this wedding party because of the wedding that's responsible for the wedding party. Jesus and his family evidently know this family and possibly they're even related to the family, some have suggested, because Mary knows this problem has arisen before other people seem to know that this problem has come about, that the wine is gone. And so she comes to Jesus and she tells Jesus the problem, evidently because she hopes and believes that Jesus might be able to do something. We don't know whether she was expecting a miracle because this is the first of the miracles. So she's never seen a miracle. She's never seen her son work a miracle before, but she's grown to trust him. And, though, and even though he says something to her that's a little hard to figure out, eventually she's convinced that he is going to do something, and so she says to the host, or to the master of the, of the party, whatever he says to you, to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And by the way, that's great advice for any of us to heed. Whatever Jesus says to us to do, we should do it. We should trust him, and we should do it. And so I want you to think about a couple of things in light of what we're told as the story goes forward. First of all, I want you to think with me about Jesus and the bridegroom. There's Jesus who's there at this wedding, and then there's the bridegroom. He's just gotten married, 
and his family is responsible for this celebration, and the wine is gone. And so Jesus does something. Jesus does something for this bridegroom who was unable to do that which was expected of him. He was the one who was expected to provide enough wine for this celebration, but it has run out. We don't know why. We don't know if it was a lack of resources or if it was a lack of planning, but the wine is gone. And so Jesus does something for this bridegroom who was unable to do that which was expected of him. But I also want you to see something else here that I think is super important. Not only Jesus and the bridegroom, but I want us, and I think we're supposed to see here, Jesus as the bridegroom. Because Jesus acts on behalf of the bridegroom as if he is responsible, as if he is the bridegroom. He takes things into his own hands for this friend, probably maybe relative of his family, that has this very terrible situation. The Bible quite often refers to Jesus as a bridegroom. As a matter of fact, in the very next chapter of John, in John chapter 3, verse 26, we read these words, And they came to John, meaning John the Baptist, and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, referring to Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Then John the Baptist answers, and toward the end of his answer, in verses 29 and 30, we're told this. John said this, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, probably John referring to himself, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. So in the very next chapter, John the Baptist refers to Jesus as the bridegroom. And he says that the people are going to him to be baptized because those who are being baptized, they are the bride. And it's natural that as the bride, they would go to the bridegroom. And so John the Baptist accepts this and says, he must increase and I must decrease decrease but this isn't the only place we see this imagery of Jesus as the bridegroom as a matter of fact Paul when he's writing to the church at Corinth uses this same imagery as he seeks to encourage them toward purity and holiness as a church and he says in 2nd Corinthians eleven two these words for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ and so the imagery is this a church of believers is a body of people that has been betrothed to Jesus Christ and one day when Christ returns there will be the wedding and there will be the joy that we see illustrated here in John chapter 2 And Paul's desire for this church was that it would be a pure church, like a wife would be pure through her betrothal period as she is married to her husband. And so again, we see this imagery elsewhere in Scripture. But let's look at the miracle itself that Jesus performs in a sense for the bridegroom and in a sense that he performs as the bridegroom. This miracle is an interesting miracle. It's his first, we're told, and he turns water into wine. And the way this happens is this. Jesus 
tells the servants to bring water and to fill these six stone jars that were used for ritual cleansing. And that's not by accident that it happens that way. That this miracle actually takes place out of these jars that represent ritual cleansing. What that means is people would, under the Old Testament law, they would have to wash themselves, their hands, and other parts of their body to be ritually clean before God. And so these jars are filled to the brim, and then evidently when the water is drawn out, it becomes wine. And it's taken to the master of ceremonies who drinks it and who says, thinking the bridegroom has done this. Now this is sort of an anonymous miracle because only a few people know that Jesus actually does this. They assume, the master of the feast assumes, that the bridegroom himself has this kind of wine now to be served to the people. And the master of the feast drinks it and says, this is far and beyond what is expected of a bridegroom. Because usually what a bridegroom will do is he'll provide the good wine for the beginning of the feast. And then after people have been drinking for a while and they're not quite as interested in how it tastes, he brings out the poor wine. But you have saved the good wine for last. And so it's an incredible story if you think about it. And one of the things we see here is that Jesus does this, what he does for the bridegroom who was not able to do what was expected of him. And Jesus as the bridegroom or acting as the bridegroom, he is able to do more than was expected of the bridegroom. So ultimately what we're seeing here is Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom. He is the ultimate bridegroom bridegroom he's the one who turns water into wine I like what C.S. Lewis said about this miracle he said some people think of miracles as something that are done contrary things that Jesus did contrary to the laws of nature and creation Lewis said no not at all and he said specifically about this miracle that God the creator turns water into wine every year The water comes down as rain. It's absorbed in the soil where there's a vineyard. And that water is passed through the vine until it produces grapes, which eventually becomes wine. And so Lewis said, God does this every year. The Creator turns water into wine every year over the course of months. Jesus just speeds up the process here and does it in a matter matter of minutes. Now, the imagery here of the wine is significant because it points to joy. It points to the joy of salvation that we have when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 4-7. Speaking to God, the psalmist says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. People who don't know God, they experience at least a certain level or kind of joy when they have plenty and when they have plenty of wine and they celebrate. They experience a measure of joy. But the psalmist says here, God, you put more joy in my heart than they have when they have an abundance of grain and when they have an abundance of wine. And so that's the picture here. You see, Jesus, the Creator, doing what only the Creator can do in this story. 
Back at the beginning of John's gospel, you guys will remember because if you were here at the beginning of the book, we read these words. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. All things were made through him and apart from him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus was the creator in the beginning and now he is on earth embodied as a human being and he continues to do what only the creator can do revealing his glory revealing himself to be one and the same with God the father he was the word who existed with God in the beginning he was the word that existed as God in the beginning and now he has come and he is revealing his glory so let me give you a couple of quick things before we move to the second story First of all, this changing of water into wine represents the power that Jesus has to change the old into the new. Jesus has the power to change that which is old into something new and far better. For example, Jesus is able to change and came to change the old covenant into the new covenant. Remember I said those six stone jars that the water was in that this miracle came out of that's again not by coincidence those stone jars represent the old covenant and ritual cleansing and washing what Jesus is able to do is what that only symbolized Jesus is able to take a person and make them clean before God when they put their faith and trust in Christ and It's not just a ritual. It's not just something that is ceremonial. It's real. We can experience genuine cleansing and forgiveness through Jesus Christ and the joy represented by the wine of real forgiveness and real gladness. That's what salvation looks like. It's forgiveness that leads to gladness. It's cleansing that leads to celebration. That's exactly what Jesus came to do, and that's what this miracle represents again back in chapter 1 at verse 14 and some have said this is the theme verse in many ways for the book and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory glory is of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth and this parable says that this was how the disciples began to see and Jesus began to reveal his glory but this parable points not only to the old covenant becoming the new covenant but also more specifically old creations becoming new creations Paul wrote later if any man is in Christ he's a new creation old things have passed away and all things have become new so the water of the law is replaced by the wine of the gospel and The ritual of cleansing is replaced by the reality of cleansing and the joy that comes when we put our faith in Jesus and know that we've been cleansed and that we're forgiven before God. So in the first story, we see a sign performed by Jesus that revealed his glory. In the second story, we see a sign promised by Jesus that would ultimately reveal his glory. Now, the second story is this. Jesus goes into the temple and he drives out those who are selling and buying and who are exchanging coins. He evidently does this again toward the end of his ministry. But here, he drives out those who are selling in the temple. 
And he does so for a reason. Notice again Jesus and the temple. And then Jesus as the temple. Jesus and the temple. Jesus goes into the temple. There are animals there. There is trading. There is money changing that's taking place. And Jesus weaves a cord. He makes a whip out of cords and he drives out the animals and those who are selling money. He, he empties the temple because what's happening there is something that shouldn't be happening there. In other words, he acts as if he is the Lord over the temple. And because of that, the religious leaders say, what sign will you give us? There's that word again, right? What sign will you give us for what you've done? In other words, you have assumed a prerogative, but can you prove that you have the prerogative to do what you've done, to act as if you're Lord over this temple? And Jesus says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They, of course, think he's talking about the building, this huge, enormous structure called the temple. And they say... It took us 46 years to build this building, this temple. And you're saying you could raise it if it were destroyed in three days? But the text tells us that they misunderstood that Jesus was not talking about the temple as a building, but he was talking about the temple as his body. And he was ultimately talking about his death, destroy this temple, he says to the Jews who would eventually be the main ones who would bring about his death, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus is saying, I'm going to die, and I am going to rise. I'm going to raise myself, my body, from the dead on the third day. So here's a question to think about. Did God raise Jesus, or did Jesus raise Jesus? The answer is yes. It's both, right? Because quite often in the Bible we read that God raised Jesus, but here we read Jesus saying that you destroy this temple, referring to his body, and in three days I will raise it up. So Jesus is essentially saying, you will eventually have your sign. Jesus' resurrection would be the proof that he was who he seemed and claimed to be through his act in the temple. He was the Lord of the temple. But notice finally Jesus as the temple, and I think this is an important thing to see here too. Jesus is not only to be seen in our text today as the bridegroom, but he's also to be seen in this text as the temple because he refers to himself and his body as the temple because he was the fulfillment of what the temple was pointing to. Now, earlier in our Old Testament text that we heard this morning in 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, The temple is referred to as the house of the Lord and as the house of sacrifice in the reading we heard earlier. Jesus is saying that about himself. He's saying that his body is the temple of the Lord, that he is God incarnate, and that his body is the house of sacrifice, that his body is going to be sacrificed. That's what his body being destroyed was ultimately about. The Jews were going to destroy his body, and in his death, he would be offering the sacrifice that would atone for sin that all of the sacrifices offered in the temple ultimately pointed to. So Jesus' death 
as the temple, as the house of sacrifice, his body. His death was the atoning sacrifice that makes it possible for us to experience the washing and the cleansing that we have in Christ and to have this wine of gladness that God gives us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. In the temple, sacrifices were offered to make atonement for sin. But they ultimately pointed to one sacrifice that would be made to atone for our sins, and that was the sacrifice that Jesus made when he gave himself and was destroyed on the cross and then raised himself up from the dead. As I said earlier, later in his ministry, Jesus did this again, it seems. And in Mark, we read about Jesus doing the same thing in the temple, cleansing the temple. It says there, Mark eleven seventeen, And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves or robbers. Now, notice he says here, that the reason he cleanses the temple is because this is all happening in the outer part of the temple where those who were non-Jews would come and pray. And God's intention was for those who were Gentiles, those who were non-Jews, who wanted to know and worship God, could come into this outer area of the temple and worship and pray. And so Jesus is angry because all this is happening and the Gentiles wouldn't be able to pray. There'd be so much noise and so much distraction that they wouldn't be able to worship the true God. And that's why Jesus did this again later because he wanted those who were beyond the nation of Israel to know this salvation, to drink this wine of salvation and forgiveness that we can have through faith in Christ. And that's why at the end of his life, Jesus called his church to go and make disciples of all nations to take this message to the ends of the earth that those who are Gentiles, nations, the nations of the world, which includes us, that we can be forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. And so I want to remind you as we finish this morning that this church and every church has the commission to make disciples of all nations so that those who are outside of the nation of Israel God's original people can hear the message and can receive this salvation, this cleansing, and this joy that Jesus makes possible through his death and through his resurrection. Let's bow and let's pray. Father, I thank you today that we have these records that John has written about these signs that Jesus performed that proved who he was, that proved that he was who he said he was and that he came to do and did what he said he did through his death and resurrection. Father, I pray again today that those who've heard of this first sign and this promised ultimate sign that Jesus would give in regard to who he was and what he did, I pray, Father, for people today who maybe have not seen for themselves and really uh, believed that Jesus was God in human flesh who gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Lord, I pray uh, for those like that in this, in, in, in this room who are listening right now, God, that you would enable them to see that Christ died for their sins and that he was raised so that they could be forgiven and could have this joy that comes through forgiveness of sin, this gladness that comes through the forgiveness of sins. 
Lord, I pray for that and pray for those here who are trusting in Christ that we would celebrate and continue to rejoice in what you've done for us and help us to be so filled with your joy that we want the nations to hear this message and to believe in Christ and to have this forgiveness and to have this gladness. So send us out as your witnesses today and draw people who are here this morning to trust in Christ as their Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.